0: Two of my absolute favorite things besides being married to Ashley and the dad to two adorable little girls is planting churches and preaching the Bible. And today I actually get to do both of those because as you notice, I'm not in the room with you. Uh, I'm actually in Ohio training church planters with the Church Multiplication Network, uh, a part of the Assemblies of God. It's an organization that we are a part of. Six years ago, me and Ashley went to train. They sent us out to plant this church. And so it's a great privilege to be able to give back to CMN. Right now we are training about two dozen church planters who are going to go back to their hometown and plant a spirit-filled, life-giving church in their community. So Redemption, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me the privilege and the opportunity to do that, but... Due to technology, even though I'm not with you in person, I still get the privilege to be able to preach the Bible. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So if you brought yours today, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 53. We are continuing in our study of the book of Mark. Today is the 61st sermon in our study through the simple gospel in the book of Mark. And the title for today's sermon is called Jesus is God, I hope you are ready to talk about Jesus. And if you're not, well, you're at church and we're still going to talk about him anyway because that's kind of what we do. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 14 starting in verse 53 as we take a look at Jesus being God. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. Let's go ahead and pause right there. Catch everybody up to speed. In Mark chapter 14, we're looking at the last day of Jesus' life. For three years, he's been ministering, teaching, preaching, healing, journeying to the place of Jerusalem. And here he is finally in Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. And this story takes place on the last day of Jesus' life. Mark 14 starts off with Jesus in the upper room celebrating Passover. or or the Last Supper with his disciples. Following Passover, they sing a hymn. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and he prepares himself because the cross is before him. Judas comes in, betrays him with the kiss. There's a whole uh, soldiers and guards. They all seize Jesus, arrest him. Peter cuts off a dude's ear. They drag Jesus from the garden of Gethsemane. And now they're at the high priest's house. This story takes place at about three o'clock in the morning. Now that everybody's up to speed, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they all came together. This is the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of Israel. You can think about it kind of like it's the Supreme Court of their day it's the top leading officials the senior leaders it is the religious leaders they're all gathered together and they're going to put Jesus on trial here's what it says and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and he is warming himself by the fire now the chief priests and the whole council they were seeking testimony against Jesus why because they want to put him Him to death, but they found none. They found no testimony against him, for many bore false witness. They lied, they accused, they bore false witness against him, but his testimony did not agree. And some stood up and they bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even their testimony did not agree, and the high priest stood up in their midst and asked them, Have you no answer to make? Jesus, what do you have to say about yourself? Why are these people condemning you? What is your charge? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61, but he remained silent and he made no answer. In the Old Testament, God gave the Jewish people certain ways in which they're to pursue justice and have a right to a fair trial. This is actually one of the things that separates the Jewish people from other Uh, Near Eastern ancient religions of the day is that God teaches that every single person is worthy of dignity of honor of Value respect and they have the right to a fair trial And so in the book of Leviticus God gives certain orders on how people are supposed to be brought to justice and there's three ways that God tells us to do that the first thing is this is that a trial needs to be public That means they're not supposed to be private. Other people are supposed to be able to see and to witness and to watch. But that's not what's happening here. This is not a public trial, but rather this is a private trial. This is happening at about 3 o'clock in the morning at the high priest's house. So they're not following the law or the rules that God instituted for them. The second thing is, is that a testimony needs to have two or three witnesses. But we don't see this here either. There's not two or three witnesses. So they bring in a whole bunch of false witnesses that lie, that accuse, and make up stories about Jesus. But even in the midst of the group that was there, they all recognize that these stories, they don't actually line up. There is no charge that can be brought against Jesus. They're false witnesses at a false trial. And then the third thing is this, is that no one could incriminate themselves. Yet that's exactly what the high priest is telling Jesus to do. He asks him and he says, what answer do you have to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus, he remains silent because Jesus knows that he is innocent. The crowd knows that he is innocent. The priest knows that he's innocent. The soldiers know that he's innocent. The disciples know that he's innocent. Even later, Judas will say that he's innocent. But nobody cares about Jesus' innocence because this is not a trial. This is an execution. This is the setup for a murder. And I want to explain this to you. This is why it's so important for us to understand the context of what's going on here. Because sometimes it is the religious people who are often the most opposed to Jesus. These are the people who are supposed to pride themselves on keeping the law, and yet these are the people, the very people, who are breaking the law. Sometimes it is the most religious people who oppose Jesus. Everything that I'm going to tell you today, I want you to understand this. If you're taking notes, write this down, very important, is that Christianity is not about a religion, but rather it is about a person. But I'm not trying to convert you to a religion. I'm not preaching the gospel to convert you to an ideology or a philosophy or a system. I'm trying to introduce you to a person and that person's name is Jesus. Whenever I'm sharing my faith or witnessing or talking to people about Jesus, inviting them to church and say, hey, I would love for you to come to church with me. And they say, well, I'm just not really into that. I'm just not really into the church or Christianity or Jesus. And I ask them why. And inevitably they always bring up something from their experience. They say, well, you know, I grew up in church or I worked with some Christians and they were mean and they were nasty and I just didn't like the way that they treated me and I kind of think that Christians are outdated and they're fuddy-duddy, fundamentalists, all mental and no fun. They're hypocritical or maybe they're bigoted or homophobic and the church is just too big and I'm not a fan of organized religion. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious and they have a big long list of reasons to why they don't want to come to church or why they don't want to become Christians or why they don't want to talk about these things. But that's not the question that we asked. We asked about... Jesus, because that's what matters most. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? At the bedrock, at the core, at the center is Christianity, is that it's about a person. It's about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm not trying to convert you to a religion or a philosophy or an ideology. I'm trying to introduce you to a person, and sometimes it is the most religious people who oppose Jesus the most. That's important for us to understand as Jesus goes on trial and he reveals and he testifies and he tells us that he is God. Continuing the story, here's what we see here. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, he tore his garments and said, What further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that you will ever ask yourself in this life. Who is Jesus? And the way that you answer this question determines the way that you answer every question. It determines who you date, who you marry, how you raise your kids, where you work, where you spend your money, where you go to church, how you live your life. Everything hangs and hangs upon how you answer this question who is Jesus Christ? And whether you accept him or whether you reject him, you cannot be indifferent towards him. Jesus is the most prolific, iconic figure that has ever walked the face of the planet. He is famous. He is infamous. He is loved. He is hated. He is revered. He is Jeered, but he is undeniable, he is unequivocal, the most important person who has ever lived in the history of the world. More songs have been sung to him, more paintings have been painted of him, more books have been written about him than any other person who has walked this planet. Our entire history is divided by his life. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord are two major holidays coming Commemorate him, Christmas, his birth, Easter, his death, burial, and his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the center of all of human history. And whether you accept him or you reject him, you cannot be indifferent. And towards him, you must answer this question, who is Jesus And to understand how Jesus became so famous, you also need to understand who Jesus is. And if you want to get to know somebody, what's the best way for you to get to know them? You ask them. See, one way you can get to know somebody is you can ask around and you can learn some things about them. You could go on Google, you could read a book, you could ask other people, and you could ascertain some information or maybe you can learn about that person. But the best way for you to actually get to know someone is for you to ask them. So just think about it, if you wanted to get to know me, how would you get to know me? You could go online, you could go to redemptiontx.com, you could click on the About Us, and you could read the two-paragraph biography that is on our website. You can learn. Byron got saved at the age of 20. He married his wife Ashley. They've been together for 15 years. They have two beautiful daughters, and they planted this church about five years ago. But that doesn't mean you actually know me. You could go on my Facebook, you could go on my Instagram, and you could see what I care about, you could see what I post about, but that doesn't mean you really know me, the true me, nor the real me. If you really want to get to know me, here's how you do it. You say, hey, Byron, would you like to go have some coffee? And I would say, yes, that sounds amazing. And then we would sit down, we'd have some coffee, and you would say, tell me about yourself. And then I would say, okay, great, this is who I am. If you want to get to know somebody, you ask them and then they tell you. That's the same thing that we see happening in this text today. The high priest is asking Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? But instead of having coffee with him, he is blindfolding him, beating him, spitting on him, blaspheming him, and telling him, prophesy. And so the high priest is wanting to know this question, who is Jesus? And that's the same question that many people are still asking themselves today. 2,000 years later, Jesus is still just as popular as ever before. People are talking about Jesus. People are co-opting the message of Jesus. People are adopting Jesus to be able to fit their agenda. But the truth is, Jesus will not be co-opted nor adopted to fit somebody else's agenda because Jesus is about himself. And if you really want to know who Jesus is, then you need to ask Jesus for yourself. And in this text today, that's exactly what we see, that Jesus here begins to speak for himself. And Jesus has to tell you that he is God. Some of you, you have been lied to. Some of you have been told that Jesus never claimed that he is God. But that's just not true. Many people today would say that Jesus was a good man who did some good things, who lived a good, decent, moral life, that he was a good moral guide, or maybe he was an example, but that he wasn't actually God. Other people would say that Jesus is a way among many ways, that all religions basically teach the same thing. And Jesus is an enlightened person, or Jesus is a type of God. But all gods, all truth, all religion are the same. You get to invent your truth, make up your own truth, while you paint with all the different colors of the wind. And you've heard these things, but that's just not true. The truth is, Jesus declared himself to be God. That Jesus publicly, emphatically, undeniably, unequivocally declared himself to be God. And Mark chapter 14 is one of the clearest references that we find in all of the Gospels where Jesus says, I am God. And you need to understand something. That Jesus, he was not put to death because of his works. Right now in this text, whenever they say they're tearing their garments and they said, what further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? What is their decision? That they condemn him to death. They didn't condemn him to death because of his works, but rather his words. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. Jesus did not die because of his works, but because of his words. See, nobody has a problem with the the words, uh, the works of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, he's preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. Nobody has a problem with the works of Jesus. Whenever Jesus heals a person, nobody's like, stop healing people. That's a bad thing. No, everybody loves it. He's like a walking hospital with free health care, no deductible, and no copay. People love that. Whenever Jesus feeds the multitudes on two different occasions, nobody left angry. Everybody left full. Nobody was hangry. It was a good day because Jesus fed everybody. Whenever Jesus cast out demons, nobody's getting upset unless they're the demons and then they're a little upset. But other than that, nobody's mad about Jesus doing the mighty miracles, signs, wonders, and works that he did. Instead... People killed Jesus, they arrested him, they betrayed him, and they put him on trial. Ultimately, they crucified him, not because of his works, but rather because of his words. And if you ask people today, and I would tell you that they probably don't have a problem with the works of Jesus. This is why you still see viral memes in TikTok videos and YouTube where people are talking about the works of Jesus. And they'll say things like, Jesus was a Republican, Jesus was a Democrat, Jesus was a socialist, Jesus was a feminist, Jesus was a friend of sex workers, Jesus was whatever it is that's trending today, fill in the blank, because people, they don't have a problem with the works of Jesus. But if you were to ask those same people, do you believe that Jesus is God, they would say, nah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus is God. In fact, I find it a little offensive that you would say that. That's narrow-minded. That's intolerance. I think that's a little bigoted. I think that's outdated. You need to open your mind a little bit. They would not agree that Jesus is God. They don't have a problem with his works, but they do have a problem with his words. And essentially, when you separate the works from the words of Jesus, you become the high priest of your life. And then you blindfold, beat, and spit on Jesus, and you have him condemned to death. You can't separate the works from the words of Jesus. Because the works of Jesus confirm the words of Jesus, that Jesus is, Jesus was, and Jesus alone is God. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to spend the remainder of this sermon... And I want to give you nine reasons that we believe that Jesus is God. And we're not just making this up. We didn't just come up with this as a myth or a folklore or a fairy tale. This comes from the very lips and the red letters of Jesus himself where he declares himself to be God. I want to give you nine reasons that we believe Jesus is God. And the nine reasons is this, because Jesus himself said that he is God. If everybody can talk about Jesus, I think it's only fair that Jesus gets to speak for himself. If everybody wants to judge Jesus, then let Jesus testify about who he is. If everybody has something to say about Jesus, then I think it's only fair that Jesus gets something to say. Amen? And so if you were to ask Jesus, who are you? What do you have to say about yourself? Tell me, Jesus, who are you? You know what Jesus would say? Jesus would say, I am God. And here's nine different ways through the Gospels that Jesus declares himself to be God. The first is this. Jesus says that he came down from heaven. Here's what John 6.38 says. For I have come down from where? Heaven. Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. As this, as he was saying this, they began to grumble. They began to complain. They began to tweet about it and become keyboard warriors and complain about it online. About him, why? Because he said, "'I am the bread that has come down from heaven.'" They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say that he's come from heaven? On hearing it, many of his disciples, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus him. At this point, Jesus, he's famous, he's infamous, his popularity is growing, he's preaching to crowds upwards of five, maybe even 15,000 people at a single time. I mean, Jesus, he is trending on Twitter, he's number one on iTunes, he's covered on every single magazine, all of the news stations are covering him in a feature story. People love Jesus, and it's not because of his words, but rather because of his works. His works have made him very popular, very prestigious, and very famous. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking. And when Jesus starts talking, he starts saying crazy things like, I have come down from heaven. And everybody's like, whoa, Jesus, that's a little much. That's a a little much. I think Jesus has lost it. I think Jesus needs to go to counseling. I think Jesus needs a little medication. I think Jesus, woo-hoo, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And then everybody's like, yeah, we we're, we're can't handle this. And so then they all begin to leave him. Basically, Jesus said some crazy things, and then they canceled him. That's exactly what you see happening in John 6. They're like, Jesus, I mean, didn't we grow up with him? Didn't we play Little League with him? I mean, don't we know his mother and his, his father? Don't we know who his brothers are? And now he's talking about coming down from heaven? What is that supposed to mean? As Jesus is saying that he has come down from heaven, what he's saying is this, is that he exists outside of time. That he is pre-incarnate, that he is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, without beginning, without end. He is the author and the finisher. He is the creator and the sustainer of all of the universe. Before the beginning... There's where he was from. He comes down from heaven. And this is what separates Christianity from every other major world religion that there is. Because every other religion teaches you that you can make your way to God. But Christianity teaches us this, that we don't make our way to God, but rather God has made his way to us. Every other religion would say, due to good works or due to good deeds... Maybe if you reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, help enough old ladies cross the street, and at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe you can make your way to heaven. That's what every other religion teaches, that you make your way to heaven. But we see through Christianity that we don't make our way to heaven. Instead, God has made his way to us. This is what Emmanuel, Emmanuel, that you write on your Christmas cards at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew his name shall be Emmanuel do you know what that means God with us why because Jesus is God and we can't make our way to him and so God sends his only begotten son on a rescue mission to seek and to save us to make his way to us point number one Jesus says he has come down from heaven which means Jesus is God point number two Jesus says he is more than just a good person People would say, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a moral example. Jesus says, no, I'm more than a good person. Look at this story in Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. And here's what he says. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. We mentioned this earlier, but it's important for us to reiterate this, that Jesus is not just a good person. He is not just a good teacher. Here Jesus says he is more than that. No one is good but God alone, so don't call me good unless you're also willing to call me God. Number two, Jesus is more than just a good person. Number three, Jesus says that he is the son of man. This is the favorite title that Jesus gives to himself. In fact, more than 80 times in the four gospels, Jesus uses this title to be able to describe himself. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And we see this in Mark chapter 14. Here's what he says. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. And this comes From the prophet Daniel, written about 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene, Daniel prophesies about a vision that he sees. And here's what we see in Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night, I looked, and behold, before me was one who was like a son of man. Coming in the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, that's God himself, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign Power over all peoples, nations, men of every language, they worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And as Jesus quotes the prophet Daniel. What does the high priest do in this text? He tears his clothes because the high priest, the religious leaders, they recognize that in using the son of man title, Jesus was declaring, Jesus was affirming that he is God. He's referencing Daniel, one of the clearest messianic titles that is given through the Old Testament. It talks about, I saw one who is like the Son of Man, who is coming down from heaven. Not coming up to heaven, but rather coming down from heaven. What is that? Point number one, Jesus is God. And then it talks about the Ancient of Days. This is God himself, pre-eternal, pre-incarnate, before time began, the ancient of days, without beginning, without end. Again, point number one. So the Son of Man goes into the throne room and to the presence of God himself, and he receives glory, he receives honor, he receives dominion, he receives might, privilege, prestige, power, presence, and also it says that he receives worship that people begin to worship him. And he judges all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people. And he is the king over a kingdom that has no end. You say, that sounds to me a lot like God. Exactly. Because Jesus is the son of man, which means, point number three, Jesus is God. The fourth thing that we see is this, is that Jesus says he is the son of God. And so if the son of man reference made the religious leaders uncomfortable and angry, then you better believe that the Son of God made the Roman government and authorities even more upset. Because to them, Caesar was the Son of God. We actually talked about this already in Mark chapter 13. There was a big controversy over the use of a certain coin, a a denarius, because on that coin... Was an image of Caesar, and around it there's an inscription that said, Caesar Augustus, son of God. The Romans, they would actually worship and teach, and they would believe that Caesar was divine, that he was the son of God, which means he is the same essence, he is of the same stuff, he is made up of and has the authority that the gods would have. And Jesus looks at that coin, and Jesus looks at that statement. He says, cute pick, but I'm actually the Son of God. Look what it actually says here. Here's what we read when it talks about the, the Son of God. John 10, 30. I and the Father, that's God himself, are one. God is the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus says this. And here's what the Jewish opponents, they did. They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of these good works do you stone me? And here's what they said. Clearly, I want you to pay attention to this. It's very clear. People often say that they don't have enough proof that Jesus is God. But I would submit to you that you need to have more proof to prove that Jesus is not God than listening to his very words. They say, we are not stoning you for any good works but for blasphemy. Why? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's fascinating what happens when you read the Bible And you let Jesus speak for himself. Amen. It's almost as if Jesus keeps saying, oh, by the way, I'm God. Weird, because that's exactly what he is saying. But if you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, I told you that any witness needs to have two or three witnesses that support them. And God goes through meticulous detail to be able to support and to affirm his teachings throughout the scripture. And so in Mark's gospel, we actually have three witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. First, we see Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then God the Father, he speaks... So first, God the Holy Spirit speaks through the writing of the book of Mark. God the Father speaks at his baptism. And he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then again in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration, God the Father speaks again and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Let Jesus speak for himself. Listen to him. We also see that the the demons affirm that Jesus is God. As Jesus is casting out the demons, they say, what have you to do with the son of God? So God says Jesus is God. The demons say that Jesus is God. And then we see at the grand finale of the book of Mark in Mark chapter 15 at the crucifixion, here's what the Roman soldier says. And I quote, surely today we killed The son of God. Truly, this day, this man was the son of God. Because Jesus publicly, emphatically, undeniably said he is God. Bada bing, bada boom, shazam, mic drop, Jesus, bazinga, Jesus is God. Number five, Jesus says that he is Yahweh. That word right there, Yahweh, that you see it on the screen, you probably can't pronounce it because there is no vows. Actually, that name is the sacred, revered name of God. It's unpronounceable. You would actually, actually be, only be able to breathe that name. It's what theologians call the tetragrammaton. Turn to your neighbor and say, tetragrammaton. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, don't touch my grammaton. Okay. <sighs> oh, that was bad. All right. That name is so sacred that not even the scribes were able to write that day. When you're reading in the Old Testament, it would be the capitalized Lord, It's so sacred that the scribes, when they're writing the the Old Testament, they would actually have to get rid of their pen, go wash their hands, get a new pen, write the Tetragrammaton one time, and then discard that pen to never be used again. And then they would continue writing. And they would have to do that over and over again because it is the most revered name in all of the Hebrew culture. And here Jesus is actually using this name for himself. Jesus says in John 8, 56, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. What Jesus is referencing here is all the way back into the book of Exodus, whenever God showed up to Moses to be able to tell him to go to Pharaoh, to let the people go, God showed up to Moses in a burning bush that was not yet consumed. And as Moses is walking through the wilderness, this giant bush catches on fire, and then it begins talking to him. And it says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now, Moses, he does what you and me would do. He says, "Um, who do I tell them is telling them to let these people go? Because I can't just say a talking bush. So I need to have a name. And then the, the, the bush that is burning but not consumed, says, tell them that I am that I am. This is the sacred name of God. Most holy, it is the most revered name. And then Jesus uses it to refer to himself. And that's the same thing that we see happening in Mark chapter 14. Because the high priest asks him, he says, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And you know what Jesus says? I am. I am Yahweh. I am the sacred, the holy, the son of the most blessed one. Everything you read about in the Old Testament, that's me. Every time you use the tetragrammaton, you were talking about me. Every time you read in the Bible and Lord is in all caps, that's me. I am Yahweh. I am God. And they tear his clothes and they accuse him of blasphemy. You know what that word blasphemy means? Declaring oneself to be God. Why? Because Jesus is God the next point that we see here is this and I got to say this at this moment you really have to ask yourself why would Jesus continue saying this I mean death is inevitable it is certain he is just hours away from his crucifixion if Jesus was a liar this is his moment to recant if Jesus is not telling the truth, he should be able to say, no, 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 guys, big misunderstanding. Big misunderstanding. You thought I said I was God? Sorry, I'm a little dyslexic. Dog, that's what I meant to say. Got it backwards. You guys got it backwards. I'm not God. I'm dog. I'm dog. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't recant. He doesn't cower. He doesn't run away. He doesn't change his story. Everybody else in the text, they're changing their stories. They're lying about him. But Jesus doesn't lie about himself. When faced with certain death, when faced with his execution, while being blindfolded, beat, and spit upon, Jesus says, oh, yeah, that's right. I am God. And to double down and to make this statement extra clear, when asked, who are you, he says, I am you say, but it sounds to me like Jesus is saying he's God. Then the point is clear. Jesus declares himself to be God. Point number six, Jesus claims that he's without sin. John eight forty six. can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That's a bold claim. Can anyone prove you guilty of sin? You're like, put your hand down. Yes. Jesus invites it. He says, "Hey, any of y'all have anything negative bad to say about me? Anybody have I done anybody wrong? No, anybody can convict me of sin. Okay, I'm telling you the truth. Why don't you believe me?" And then again in Mark chapter 14, we see that multiple witnesses, they come out and they begin to accuse Jesus. And what is the outcome? Nothing sticks. Verse 55, it says, now the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking testimony. Hey, do you have something to say? Do you have something to say? Do you have something to say? Does anybody got something bad to say about Jesus? Is there anybody in all of this city who has one bad thing to say? And everybody's like, I got nothing. I got nothing. And here's what we see is that they were seeking a testimony, but they found none. None. Today we have a saying that goes nobody's perfect. In fact, we almost use that as an excuse for us to not be perfect. The Bible teaches that everyone is a sinner, and today we kind of wear sin like it's a badge of honor. We kind of wear sin as if it's a a state of pride. We, we like to tolerate and to celebrate and we like to own up to our sins say, oh, yep, that's me, that's my bad, that's just who I am, that's just my Enneagram number, that's just the way that I was made, that's just the way that my mama raised me. And we like to excuse and justify, celebrate, tolerate, throw parades for our sin. And yet when it comes to Jesus, it's almost as if saying the only sin is saying that something is a sin. And here Jesus invites everyone to say something to point the finger at him. Could you just imagine this? Imagine this is your life. Imagine if one person got on Facebook or on Twitter and just start saying all of the bad things that you've ever done in your life. And then everybody jumps into the comment section, and they dogpile on you, and they bring up all of the dirty, nasty secrets that you've said, that you've done, the way that you treated them, the way that you did somebody wrong, and everybody just lists your sin out publicly in front of the whole world to see. You would probably freak out. Like you'd delete your counts, you would quit your job, you would move to another city, you would grow a mustache, and you would hide for the rest of your life. But Jesus here, he's inviting it. Does anybody have anything on me? Can anybody say anything? And people are like, you know, now that you mention it, I got nothing. There's nothing. I mean, you would think, like, growing up, there would be somebody who could say something. I mean, nobody from, like, you know, Galilee Middle School. Nobody from Nazareth High School. I mean, it says Jesus was a construction worker. I mean, he never showed up to work a little bit late because the night before he turned too much water into wine. I mean, he never told a, a racist joke about those filthy Gentiles and those dirty pigeons. I mean, Jesus never did anything. Nobody has nothing to say. I mean, his brothers and sisters, I mean, obviously they would have something to say. I mean, if your brother is saying he's God, you would be the first one who's like, actually, no. Nope, not God. I was raised by him. Satan, not God. I mean, how many wedgies and purple nurples and white lies would would you have to go through before you realize your brother's not God? But this family doesn't say anything about it either. I mean, Mary, she could be like, Jesus, sweetie, I broke a wooden spoon over you. But she doesn't do that either. Because nobody has any charge or accusation that they can make about Jesus because Jesus is without sin. Now, here's the reason that this is so important. Because the Bible teaches that we are sinners by nature and by choice. We're sinners by nature and by choice. That sin includes sins of commission, what you do, and sins of omission, what you fail to do. Sin is the thoughts, your words, your deeds, your actions, your intentions, and your motives. You say, sin includes my thoughts. Yes, God knows your thought life, and God can read your mind. He's like, nasty, that's gross, don't do that. And every single one of us, we are sinners by nature and choice. The Bible teaches very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one that is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God, not even one, for we all have turned and we all have gone astray. From our mother's womb, we are born in sin. Everybody except Jesus. Jesus is without sin. Here's why this matters so much. Whenever John the Baptist comes on the scene, John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, Look, behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. What he's referencing there is the Lamb from Passover. And that's the whole reason that Jesus is in Jerusalem at this moment. He is celebrating Passover with his disciples. It is the high holy day. And it commemorates back in the book of Exodus when God delivered the people of Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt from the wicked ruler named Pharaoh. And God said that if Pharaoh doesn't let his people go, he's going to send a series of plagues. One of the plagues, the final plague, was the death of the firstborn son in the home. But there was a contingency plan that anyone who took the blood of a lamb that was slaughtered and sacrificed as a substitute, took the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost, the death angel would literally pass over their home. And as they issued this sacrifice, put the blood on the doorpost, The death passed over them. That's how they were set free. That's how they were delivered. And God told them every single year, I want you to remember that I am the God who delivers you through the substitute of a lamb. So go to journey in Jerusalem perform this sacrifice, as you bring your sacrifice, it has to be a perfect lamb. Not any lamb would do. It has to be a perfect lamb that is spotless, without defect, without wrinkle. And in order for you to have this perfect lamb to be acceptable as a sacrifice, you need to bring it before the high priest and the high priest will determine whether or not it is a perfect sacrifice. And what's happening here in this story? Jesus, the lamb of God, is being presented before who? The high priest. What charge or accusation can the high priest make against him? None. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. And so even in the middle of this illegal trial, false witnesses and a wicked high priest God has worked out every single detail to where Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In this very moment, Jesus is substituting himself, and he is declared by God perfect, by God holy, by God righteous, because Jesus is without sin. And here's why this matters to us. Because Jesus is without sin— only Jesus can atone for our sins. Because Jesus is without sin, only Jesus can atone for our sins. Jesus perfect. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life that we never could live. Jesus dies the painful death, the death that we all deserve. He substitutes himself as our sacrifice, goes to the cross in our place for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Three days buried in the grave, and on that third day, Jesus resurrected. And the wages of sin is death, and because Jesus had no sin, death could not sustain him. He resurrects, conquering Satan, hell, death, the grave, and sin, because Jesus is without sin. Jesus alone can atone for our sins. You may not be perfect, but Jesus was perfect. You may have made mistakes, but Jesus, He is flawless. You may have had failures, but Jesus, He is faithful every step, every bit. Everything Jesus ever done, perfect, without sin, so that through him we might be forgiven of all of our sins. Amen. Jesus, without sin, because he's God. The seventh thing that we see is this. Jesus says he forgives sins. Isn't it good news for us that there is a way for our sins to be forgiven? Isn't it good news for us that our sins are cast as far as the east is to the west? Isn't it good news for us that Jesus removes the garments of shame and of guilt and condemnation of sin, and he replaces them with garments of praise, garments of grace, garments of righteousness, because Jesus and Jesus alone, he forgives sins. Look what it says in Mark 2.5. One of my favorite stories in the gospel of Mark. When Jesus saw their faith, it's a story about four men who lower their paralyzed friend down. They cut a hole in the roof, and they lower him down from the ceiling in front of a great crowd where Jesus is leading a Bible study. And here's what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this makes the scribes and the religious leaders angry, and they're sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts. And then Jesus, reading their minds... He says this, why does this man speak like that? Here's what they're saying. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. The answer is in the question. The answer is in the question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, there you go. You got it. Figured me out. I am God. Number eight, Jesus receives worship. At the beginning of Mark chapter 14, We saw the story of Mary as she breaks the alabaster flask and she pours out her worship on Jesus. And she's adoring him and she is passionate about him. She is worshiping Jesus. Now, for a Jewish person, this would be scandalous. This would be unthinkable, inconceivable. Because in the Ten Commandments, the first of the Ten Commandments is there is only one God. The second is you worship that one God alone. You shall have no other gods before him. If you keep the first commandment, then you're guaranteed to keep the rest of the commandments. The Shema, the great prayer of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one. It's a reference to you can only worship the one true God. There is one God and you worship him and you're to worship him rightly. No one would ever consider worshiping anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible. And yet, what we see here is that this Jewish woman is bowing down before a Jewish man... And she is worshiping him as God. And Jesus not only receives her worship, he welcomes her worship, and he rebukes anyone who tries to stop her. Here's how Jesus says it as he affirms this woman. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be done in memory of her. Jesus not only welcomes and receives the worship, He also affirms her and rebukes anybody who tries to stop her or others from worshiping him. How is this possible? Because Jesus is God. Which leads to the ninth and to the final point. Is that Jesus says he will judge all people. Jesus says he will judge. John 5, 22-24. The Father judges no one. But he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Listen, you will hear people say that God seems cruel or mean or vindictive, that he is judging and condemning. And that the God of the Bible seems so different than the Jesus that I read. That the God of the Bible seems so different than the Jesus that I know. But that's not true. In fact, God the Father, he judges no one. That God gives the rights and the authority of judgment to Jesus, and it's Jesus who judges. People say, my God don't judge. Then your God ain't Jesus. Because Jesus is the judge. It's Jesus who condemns. And ultimately, it's Jesus who will send people to hell. The book of Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever. That means. Every knee will bow. Some people will bow their knee with joy and with celebration as they say, Jesus is Lord. And then other people will bow their knees in shame and condemnation as they receive their damnation with weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal conscious torment in hell. But nevertheless, every single knee will bow before Jesus because Jesus is the judge. He goes on and he says this. He says that all who may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is a stern wake-up call for anyone who ever says that they believe in God but they don't believe in Jesus. This is a wake-up call. To anyone who says they are spiritual, but they are not religious. That they believe in God, but not Jesus. Anyone who says that they believe all religions basically teach the same thing. This is a stern wake-up call to universalism. This is a wake-up call to anyone who's celebrating pluralism, tolerance, and diversity. They would say, sure, I believe in God, but I believe that all gods and all religions basically teach the same thing. How are we to know? Who can we say God is? Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's Buddha. Maybe it's Vishnu. Maybe it's Krishna. Maybe it's Allah. Maybe it's... All of them combined. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. Maybe we are God. Maybe these magic crystals that I bought from Earthbound are God. It could be anything. Who are we to say? How can we actually know? If you read your Bible, you would know. Because Jesus declares himself to be God. To dishonor Jesus is to dishonor God. To disbelieve Jesus is to disbelieve God. To reject Jesus is to reject God, and that means you will also be rejected by him. Because Jesus is the judge. Elsewhere, Jesus says this, I am the way. Not a way, among many ways, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. Not a truth, not you get to make up your own truth, because truth doesn't... Change based upon your opinions of the truth. No matter where you went to college, two plus two always equals four. You're like, one, two, three. It's four. No matter what you've been taught, no matter what other people have told you, no matter what half-baked ideas you came up at two o'clock in the morning after smoking weed, it's the same. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Listen to how Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. You're always talking about your truth. This is my truth. I gotta speak my truth. Let Jesus speak the truth. I tell you the truth. Who is Jesus? Listen to Him. Let His words speak for Himself. Whoever hears my word, believes in them, and him who sent me will have eternal life and not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is the judge. All authority is given to him. All power is given to him. He is the one who issues the decrees. He is the one who issues the verdict. And in this moment, at Jesus' trial, some little high priest is looking at Jesus and judging him. And Jesus says, nope. You don't get to judge me. In this moment, you might feel like you're in control. In this moment, you might feel like you have authority. In this moment, you might feel like you have power. But you ain't no judge. I am the judge. And then here's what Jesus says. They say, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, you think you're the judge? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and he will be coming with the clouds of heaven because Jesus is the king, because Jesus is the Lord, because Jesus is the great high priest, and Jesus, and Jesus alone is judge, the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Jesus is God. Jesus emphatically, publicly declares himself to be God. And we live in a society and a culture today that loves to judge Jesus. They love to tell Jesus who they think that he is. They love to co-opt, adopt, manipulate, twist, corrupt the words of Jesus to fit their agenda. But you can't force a judge to fit your agenda. Jesus and Jesus alone is about what he says, what he does, who he is, and why he came. Jesus is the most prolific figure in all of human history. And every single one of us have to figure out who he is, what he does, and how we are going to live our lives for him. Jesus, for 2,000 years, has sustained his legacy has continued to see the church grow and multiply. This is the reason that here we are 2,000 years later. I am here in Ohio training church planters to go and carry out the Great Commission to fulfill the purposes and grow the kingdom of God. Because after 2,000 years later, kings and queens have lived and died, but Jesus, his word still remains Because empires have risen and fallen, but Jesus, his word still remains that Jesus is still changing lives. Jesus is still giving hope. Jesus is still blessing people. Jesus is still answering prayers. Jesus is still forgiving sins. Jesus is still transforming and changing people's lives all across the planet. This is why we believe that Jesus is God. And so the way that I see it is this, is that you have two options today. You either accept him or you reject him, but you cannot be indifferent towards him. I have just given you nine reasons that you should believe that Jesus is God. People all the time, they tell me, I I would believe if I just had a little bit more proof. Truth is, you have to have proof that Jesus is not God. And you're looking for proof in anything that will validate your presuppositions of your faith. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. And if that's the case, that's on you. Just be intellectually honest enough with yourself and stop lying about who Jesus is and let Jesus speak for himself. You have to make a decision. Who is Jesus? And this is the most important decision you will ever make. And my job is to preach the word. Your job is to make a decision. If you want to know who Jesus is, all you got to do is ask him and he will tell you, I'm God. And then you have a choice. You either accept him or you reject him. But you cannot be indifferent towards him. He has not given you that option. To disbelieve in him is to disbelieve in God altogether. And to reject him is to reject God altogether. You accept him or you reject him, but you can't be indifferent towards him. Who do you say that he is? You must ask yourself, and so I'll close tonight, or today, with this quote from C.S. Lewis, the atheist, who later became an apologist. And he writes about this very verse in a book called Mere Christianity, and here's what he says. I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that you must not say. A man who is merely a man and has said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who claimed that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about us being a, him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with the frightening alternative. That this man that we are talking about... Either was and is just as he said he was, or else he is a lunatic or something worse. So I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life that determines every decision that follows after this who is Jesus? The answer is Jesus is God but you have to make that decision for yourself. And you can accept him, or you can reject him, but you cannot be indifferent towards him. You must make a choice.